This episode of Let Me Say This is brought to you by Birmingham Black Pride. Join Birmingham Black Pride this August 15th through 18th for our second annual Birmingham Black Pride. Tickets are now on sale on our website at birminghamblackpride.org. That's www.bhamblackpride.org. Let's get it. So welcome to our third episode of Let Me Say This uh, with Tony Kristen Walker. Uh, thanks y'all for listening to us. We're trying to get on some more um, platforms. Right now we're just on SoundCloud. And I think we're on TuneIn Radio. We can't get on um, iTunes because we don't have no episodes. They keep saying there are no episodes in your feed. So let me get a couple more. Maybe we'll get on iTunes. So right now this is going to be the only place where you can really... Uh, Listen to this. So today I have my friend, my brother, my pastor back again, Reverend Pastor Doctor Dave Barhart. Hey. <laughs> and so, uh, how you doing? I'm doing good. <laughs> I'm doing great. Yeah, you are. You, you're a rock star. So, um, so last week uh, when we were talking, you got me to listen to this podcast called Seeing White. Yeah. Uh, I, I ate the whole thing up. Like, mm-hmm. I really want some more episodes. Mm-hmm. Uh, but then it also got me started thinking about some things that have been happening here locally. And then last night I got into it with some races on Facebook. Mm-hmm. <laughs> As usual. As usual. So, um, so, you know, for this episode, I kind of want to do a little bit more unpacking of racism and misogyny and imperialism and all the other isms that are not good for us, and people seem to think to be just great. Mm-hmm. So um, the first thing I want to do, I want to play this this clip, um, and it's a clip from a Twitter page, and it's a joke. It's a really really good joke though about this new thing that you know white gay white gay men. I promise you, they are just like their cisgender <laughs> counterparts, mm-hmm. uh, just garbage. <laughs> but uh, I want you to listen to this. Okay. Uh, this is something about. Um, oh my god, babe. Oh my god, babe. Babe, pack your bag. We're going to street pride. What do you mean, what street pride? Babe, you need to get online. Basically, street pride is where all the street people are going to gather and celebrate being straight. It sounds so fun. I actually can't even fathom how fun this is going to be. Hurry, get your stuff. Get your swim trunks. I don't know. Or my, there might be a pool. I'm going to wear jeans and flats. What don't you get? It's basically street people hanging out and having fun together. What do you mean that sounds impossible? I don't, I don't not computing. We have 364 days a year where we have unbelievable, unspoken privilege, and then we have one day a year, one day, where we get to celebrate having that privilege all year round. What doesn't make sense to you? I was boring, and I was like, okay, I feel different from absolutely nobody. And now I'm an adult, and I still feel totally fine because the world is totally me. I'm at work in the street, and everyone's like, gotcha, and then I leave work, and now I get to go somewhere and be straight, and everyone's like, cool, and it just feels like finally, you know what I mean? So straight pride. Oh, so I was listening uh, on, and that 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 actually was from this girl named Eva Victor. Her uh, Twitter handle is at Eva and her IUD. I love her already. <laughs> She's a rock star. 
But um, that was a uh, like a, a little play on this whole notion of white oh, straight pride that's going on in Boston. Mm. So some white gay guy thought it'd be a good idea to empower straight people because you know you straight people are just so um, mm-hmm. marginalized and you don't really get to celebrate who you are because you know there are no straight people on TV. Right. There are like no straight ass on TV for right. real. Like right. you never see straight people interacting in their natural environment. Mm-hmm. And so, like, how does this become a thing? Like, what what's the thought process about that? Well, man. So, I mean, it's really fragility. That's what it is. You know, that's the term white fragility, but there's straight. I mean, it's all kinds of fragility. It's you know, when you are in a privileged position, when you when you are so used to power and so used to privilege that for someone else to get attention or for for you to have to share the spotlight feels like an infringement, feels like oppression. Right. And, um, you know, I, I've tried to relate it to the folks who, who don't understand this way for my whole life. Like on, on our anniversary, my wife and I can go into a restaurant and I can tell the waiter, Oh, tonight's our anniversary or whatever. And if the person, you know, say there's another couple, two tables over, they hear that they buy us a bottle of wine, right. And send it to our table. Because it's our anniversary, right? right? But it's, it's not always been that way for for queer folks. And it's still, it's still is, you know what I'm saying? But, but like, but that's what I'm saying. Like, like that is the to me that's like that's the definition of privilege. Let me give you. Let me so last yeah. night. So uh, for those of you who don't know me, uh, I am a five year cancer survivor, and yesterday we went to Noonan, Georgia, to the Cancer Treatment Centers of America mm-hmm. to do like they call it the celebrate life. So they celebrate all the people who have had. Five years after their cancer diagnosis, mm-hmm. whether they're cured or not, five years after you get a cancer diagnosis is a big freaking deal. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So, you know, there are a couple incidences where, you know, I felt uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, most of the people who were there were there with their husbands or wives. Right. And you got me, Bobby, and Maurice, mm-hmm. you know, and I know that no one, you know, because I probably would punch somebody in the throat, but no one was going to say anything to us. Right. But still, you know, you're like, well, what if they found out that I'm gay? Like, straight people don't have to go. Right. What if they find out straight? straight. Yeah. Oh, my God. Like, what's going to happen? They're going to yeah. kick me out. Yeah. You know, and it was just one of those things where when I see people talking about, you know, straight pride and mm-hmm. and, and just, it, it's it's ridiculous. So not, mm-hmm. so not only that, mm-hmm. last night I came home and I was still kind of amped up. Mm-hmm. So uh, I went walking down at Railroad Park and it started raining a little bit, which I was happy about. But then when I got ready to leave, Bobby and I decided to meet at Buffalo Wild Wings. Mm-hmm. And inside it was really, really noisy because there was a game going on, which, you know, I'm yeah. like, whatever. So let me go outside. So I go outside mm-hmm. and there are like these uh, men sitting around watching the game. Mm-hmm. And I'm assuming they were mostly straight. Mm-hmm. Uh, they were all black. Uh, but you know, Bobby was going to meet me down there, and I was like, you know what? We can't hold hands here. Uh, we can't really talk too loud. Mm-hmm. Because if we do, we might cause right. a, a, a stink. Mm-hmm. Straight people don't have to worry. Right. And the difference between that and my restaurant story, that's the that's the thing. I mean, and it's like, that's why there needs to be gay pride. And while we don't need to have a straight pride, the only, the only reason to have this is because someone who's straight then looks over there and sees, you know, y'all holding hands and says, they're pushing that down my throat. No, they're just being themselves. They're right. living their life. Right. And, you know, that that's, I think, what's so hard for for people who 
who have the sense of fragility to wrap their heads around. You know, just pointing out that someone it's interesting, just pointing out that someone believes a certain thing right. or holds uh, a certain position can make them very defensive. So, for example, I just recently did the speech at annual conference, and I pointed out the. Oh yeah, I missed that speech. <laughs> I, all I did was I listed um, these are these are public opinion surveys of white evangelicals. Right. And I just pointed out eighty percent of white evangelicals voted for Donald Trump, eighty percent voted for Roy Moore, sixty uh, percent um, don't believe in giving uh, asylum to refugees, fifty percent uh, think diversity is bad, only twenty eight percent believe in climate change. I said, here's your here's your picture of a white evangelical. I mean, it doesn't describe everybody, right. but a large number. And just naming that made some people so pissed off. There's a lot of beat red faces in there when you finish. Yeah. Well, it's like, I mean, you know, look, no one likes being stereotyped. Right. And I'm not, I'm not trying to stereotype. I'm just saying this is a mirror held up to, to you. And so when, when straight folk, when people have this fragility thing, it's because someone's holding a mirror up. Right. And they don't like what they see, so they blame somebody else. And to me, that's where straight pride's coming from. And you know, you, you when you meet like stereotypes, one of my one of my favorite phrases, especially being a black gay man, mm-hmm. is that I don't want to represent any stereotype. Like I don't want people to look at me and say that I'm stereotypically anything, mm-hmm. especially if it comes down to my race or my culture. Mm-hmm. Um, and even speaking of culture, there was another post on Facebook the other day, and it was about this, um, the mayor of Carbon Hill, I think, yeah, yeah. who was who was pretty much saying that gay people should be killed, mm-hmm. and people were like, "Well, you know, maybe he didn't mean it that way. How else are you? What the fuck? Like, how is he gonna mean that? I, like, what? What? Really? Yeah. And it was interesting to me because I posted this meme that said. Zero days since Alabama hadn't been a national <laughs> embarrassment, which you know we we're good to go two or three days, but mm-hmm. you know there's always something that happens. It's hard that makes us like the the center of national ridicule. Mm-hmm. And this woman replies to me, she goes, especially Birmingham, y'all need to worry about changing your culture because you know Birmingham is quote unquote the black city, and there's something inherently wrong with black culture. I mean, wow. and, and of course you know I'm like. Oh, you mean like your culture is so great since you committed genocide on a whole group of people, right. but another group over here to work for you because you're too lazy to do your work. Not to mention the disease of the job right over here and kill people. And we need to work on our culture. Right. Like, bitch, please. Like, don't even come to me with yeah. that. Listen, and that's that's another great example of like stereotyping. If just, if you just use the phrase white people, white people get uncomfortable. Oh God, yes. <laughs> <laughs> but you know that goes back to to the whole thing in that that document that um that podcast seeing white mm-hmm. where white people like seeing themselves as individuals right and I, and I never thought mm-hmm. about that until you think about all of these mass shooters mm-hmm. if an Islamic person commits a mass shooting mm-hmm. it's all it's all Muslims yeah they need to renounce the, they need to renounce their religion yeah. they need to stop wearing the hijab yeah. if a black person shoot somebody. It's all black people are criminals. We scared to go downtown Birmingham because those Negroes are going to kill us. Right. White people are shooting up folks at an alarming rate. <laughs> and he's always a fucking long wolf. Yeah, right. Yep. And you know, and that guy even said that in the in the podcast that, you know, when we when white people even think about whiteness, they want it to be singularly and, and mm-hmm. sol- solidly just them. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Because when you say, well, you're white, there's almost like this Mm-hmm. Just call me white, right? 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, but that's how the rest of us feel. Right. Yeah. Well, and, and even even so, we all want so white folks want to be seen as individuals, but there's also this sort of imperialism about what who we're going to consider white. I think last time we talked about uh, I just I looked at that. It was Saul Bellow who said that when the Zulus produced a Tolstoy, we'll read him. Right. All right. The idea like you don't own Tolstoy, he's Russian. Right. You know. So what makes you get to say that Russian culture is your white culture? And someone else, uh, I can't remember who it was, their retort was, the Zulus have a Tolstoy. His name is Tolstoy. <laughs> you know, it's, right. You don't, get to, it's not, you don't get to claim Russian culture. You know, that's, it, it's, it's this, you know, we get to claim the things that we want to claim, but then be perceived as individuals. And that's kind of the nature of whiteness. Right. right? It's, I always want to be seen in the best light possible. Whereas, um, I t- let me give you another great example of, of sort of implicit uh, uh, bias is when people from over the mountain talk about Birmingham and they talk about gang violence. There is not gang violence. Birmingham doesn't have gangs. We have retaliatory shootings, but we don't have gangs. Right. It's like you haven't, you're using the word gang be, as a substitute for black people, you know, and it is, it is such a racist statement. Whenever I hear anyone say gang violence, I'm like, you don't know what you're talking about. Right. Who, what police officers are you talking to about gang violence in Birmingham? Yeah, anyway, it just it, it drives me nuts. But it's a way to lock people into a negative category mm-hmm. and not not sound like a racist, but mm-hmm. you're really sounding like a racist. I'm gonna make this declarative comment. If you live over the mountain and you talk about gang violence in Birmingham, you are a racist. Right. And it's time to look at yourself. Yeah. I, I, absolutely. I also hold my hand up and say I have implicit bias and I'm trying to I'm a recovering racist. <laughs> Like an alcoholic, <laughs> so you have to admit you have a problem and struggle against it every day. But I think too many white folks are not willing to do that. And that's that's interesting because I met <clears throat> this uh, this lady on Facebook. It was through somebody else's um, post, and um, even last night uh, when I made the comment, I was making a bunch of statements last night. Mm-hmm about uh, mostly racism as it pertains to white people, but also homophobia as it pertains to black people. Mm-hmm. And uh, and she made a comment on my post, and I was going back and forth with it, and she started apologizing. She even said, you know, I know it's not your job mm-hmm. to educate me. And, you know, I I just firmly feel like if somebody wants to learn, mm-hmm. I'm going to show you. I'm not saying it's my job and my responsibility sure. to because, you know, it's not like she goes, well, I don't understand why you think everything I say is racist. Mm-hmm. Could you explain it to me? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm not going to do that because you should know that that's just mm-hmm. dumb. Right. But if people want to be um, more intentional with breaking down those, the racist, the racial culture mm-hmm. that we just inherently live in. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I mean, people don't don't get the fact that this country was built on racism. Right. I mean, of all the things mm-hmm. from the freedom that people uh, talk about, it's all racism. Yeah. Uh, can you imagine? Think about all the different narratives about Native Americans and cowboys and Indians. And mm-hmm. the cowboys were always the good people. Mm-hmm. But they came and stole these people's land. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So when they retaliate, then all of a sudden they're the bad they're people. Mm-hmm. Like that's right. Ra- that's that's racism at work. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's racism at work. Right. And then when we go back and tell this. One of my favorite. So I read lies my teacher told me. Have you read that one? No. Okay. Not. <laughs> so they they really look at uh, history textbooks. And one of the stories is about Squanto. 
in a way that Squanto is described by uh, history textbooks. Yeah. Like this, you know, this quote Gunan Indian who shows up and then he he speaks English and he helps the settlers and he's a, he's a nice guy basically. But they never go into his background. He was he was captured and sold into slavery. He was taken to Europe. <laughs> he escapes from slavery. That's how he knows English. Right. Okay. He makes his way back to the states when he makes so he's already been to Europe. This Native American has been to Europe. He comes back. When he gets back to his village, all his people are dead. They've been wiped out in a plague. So when diseases the, that white people brought. Right, exactly. <laughs> so when the so when the settlers come in, he's he's grateful that there's somebody alive. Right. And that's why he uh, he approaches them. But like that whole story, that should be a freaking movie. Right. That is so powerful. I mean, but nobody's gonna want to tell it. But exactly. But we tell the story like, oh, he's 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 a sidekick. Right. He's like um, uh, Lone Ranger and uh, Tonto. Uh, yeah, he's a sidekick. It's a mate. Oh, I'm sorry. But you know, but I mean, no, but it's it's almost like the whole thing with Pocahontas. You know, even mm-hmm. in Disney, like she married John Smith. She that didn't happen. It, happened, right. <laughs> it yes. didn't happen. And a white dude was not the center of that story. You know, <laughs> as they are, because so, you know, white white man pride. Right. So I think I think part of that's the whole thing is is the it's not just racism. The white supremacy part is we have to be at the center of the story, and our whiteness insulates us. Or allows us to be the main character right. of our subjective universe, and we're all we are all the main character in our own little universe. But white folks manage to extend that <laughs> to other people's <laughs> universes too. So look, so this is uh, this is a good stopping point. So we're gonna mm-hmm. take a break, sure. come back from the break, and then I want to talk a little bit more about history because there's a lot of revisionist history out there that's going on that I want to tackle. Yeah, and then we'll we'll, we'll be back. So we'll be back in a second. Peace. This episode of Let Me Say This is brought to you by Birmingham Black Pride. Join Birmingham Black Pride this August 15th through 18th for our second annual Birmingham Black Pride. Tickets are now on sale on our website at birminghamblackpride.org. That's www.bhamblackpride.org. See you there. Peace. Okay, so we are back. Thank y'all again for listening to Let Me Say This. Uh, it really kind of makes me feel good that y'all still want to listen to me. Uh, hey, Sam, Leonard, uh, I, I see you. Thanks again for all your comments and, and, and um, pumping us up. So, before we went to break, we're talking a little bit about history. Mm-hmm. But before we talk about history, I want to talk about the um, how straight pride also has like a religious tie-in mm-hmm. you know it's almost as if like when people say straight pride as a gay pride it almost reminds me of when 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 evangelical christians especially white evangelical male christians mm-hmm. say that the lgbtq movement or the women's movement is making white men look bad right mm-hmm. how does that happen <laughs> well again i think there's i think there's several pieces of that yeah. Um, I think on on I'm gonna I actually gonna say one thing I think and this, I'm not in defense of white evangelical men but I do think in terms of in terms of marriage people perceive marriage as having lost status uh, as an institution and um, and I think there's a question about like um, if someone manages to stay married for 50 years right. is that an achievement or not and I think you know part of that is feeling like uh, we're not getting like somehow that dedication is being diminished, um, or that um, that commitment is being uh, 
not taken as seriously or as, as honored. And I, I think they are they are substituting that kind of feeling for this idea that they have to it's really about sharing the spotlight. Like there are a lot of ways for people to be in relationship. Right. And that um, for gay folks who haven't had legal marriage for, for a long time, um, that, um, uh, and, and, and for a lot of reasons, a lot of people don't, don't need or want to get married. Right. Um, that they say, well, the institution of marriage itself is under attack. Um, and again, I think a big part of that is simply, gosh, we have to share the spotlight with people who choose to have families in other other ways. And I think that's part of the, um, uh, you know, the, the straight pride thing. It's like I'm, I'm, um, my own relationship is not going to be as valued if we give legitimacy to all these other people. So I like I'm kind of glad you said it because I always wonder how me being quote unquote gay married affected people who were anti gay marriage. Like mm-hmm. it's like I said before, you know, the the um the divorce rate among people, right. you know, straight mm-hmm. gay is like an at an all time high. So how are we mm-hmm. the reasons that mm-hmm. y'all can't stay married? Well, exactly. I think and I think there's some anxiety about that too because of the huge demographic changes that are happening in our society. So it used to, when I got, when I was born, right. 1973, the average age of marriage was 21. Now it's 30. Mm. And a large part of that is economics. Right. I and mean, you can't afford to get married, you know? Now, what we also know is that if you get married at 30, you're more likely to stay married, right? you know? Um, but for folks in church, uh, that was really the engine of middle class and church growth for 60, 70 years. People would... Uh, get married at 21 or thereabouts. Once they started having children, they started looking for an institution to support them in their marriage. Right. So they started attending church, right? Uh, but now, if you're out of church from the time you're, you know, in college to 30, you're less likely to go back. And all the sociological research on this, Robert Wuthnow is one of the big researchers, sociologists on the church, um, point out that most of what, what we see as church decline is directly attributable to later age of marriage. Um, not the gays. Not the gays. Wow. So, and, and largely economics. You know, right. if if people were, I'm not advocating earlier marriage. Right. But if people had, uh, if it was easier for people to get into the middle class, if we didn't, if if healthcare wasn't so expensive, if having kids wasn't so dang expensive, um, people would be more likely to get married. Right. But all, but the conservatives basically want to undercut everything that contributes to stable living conditions. So families have a hard time staying together. They have a they have a, a, a big like a record of doing that. Like even mm-hmm. when you think about what's going on on the border now, mm-hmm. with you know Trump talking about raising these tariffs, which is probably gonna help hurt the Mexican economy. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Then you know you're saying that raising these tariffs and hurting the Mexican economy will prompt Mexico to do more. Well, they can't do more because they're gonna have less. Right. Which means they're going to be able to do less to stop the influx of, of immigrants. Which means that the real problem is we should be doing more to stabilize these governments and not and not ignoring them because they don't have oil. And so exactly, so undermining them right. every opportunity. Well, the other the other thing with regard to um, uh, simply with regard to economics and the way that they consistently shoot themselves in the foot. Um, actually, I lost my train of thought. <laughs> the, the, you're talking about the conservatives shooting themselves in the foot. Yeah, well, so it's this it's this white panic 
that that they have, the reason that they are enacting all these, Charles Blow in his op-ed uh, today in the New York Times calls it white panic. And it's, you know, the, the abortion laws, again, this gets back to reproduction and family, right? How can we get white people to pop out more babies? Did I tell you about my conversation with my friend about that? No, no. No, go ahead, keep going. I'm going to bring it up. That's funny. So, so, I mean, it's got a couple of objectives, right? One thing is they want to increase the birth rate among white folks. Um, but the other thing that they're, that they inadvertently doing are, is they're creating poverty. Right. Right. So, you know, the, the other, I guess, maybe a desirable consequence in their perspective, it makes, uh, it makes it more likely that women will be economically dependent on me because yeah, women typically do better if they have children later. As I was just saying about the later age right. of marriage, um, I mean, so much of this gets back to how how our society reproduces itself. Wow. You know? And so, um, reducing immigration, right? Right. We want not only curtailing illegal immigration, but they are trying to curtail legal immigration right. also. And so, anyone who says this is about following the law, it ain't about following the law. Which is why the border situation is so bad. They they yeah. they've done away with a lot of legal ways to come in. Right, exactly. So, um, and now they're even looking at taking away birthright citizenship. I mean, which is which is crazy. A staple for centuries. Exactly. So all of this stuff is really about how does the society reproduce itself, and how can we control it so that there are more white people and we don't lose our political power so right after the the really really restrictive abortion bill got passed i was talking to a really really good friend of mine who is a nurse and she also yeah i would say she's a, a fairly decent christian mm-hmm. um you know we don't agree on all things but she's not so far out there to where she's a woman shouldn't have a baby you know because mm-hmm. she's gonna go to hell but um she called me back after we had this conversation she goes tony i just thought about something the whole thing with the abortion bill, that ain't got nothing to do with us. <laughs> I'm like, what do you mean? Because I knew where she was going because mm-hmm. I had these same thoughts, but for her to confirm it and then you to just reconfirm mm-hmm. it. I'm like, what do you mean? She goes, you know, there's a study that says by 2040, 2050, that white people are going to be the minority. Mm-hmm. They don't want these women, in particular white women, mm-hmm. having abortions right. because they want to increase the birth rate. That's exactly and I'm like, holy handmaid's tale, Batman. <laughs> <laughs> you know. <clears throat> but she's but she's right. And you just and you just mm-hmm. touched on it with Charles mm-hmm. Bull thing. The abortion bill really is not about minorities. Mm-hmm. It really is. Mm-hmm. I don't think they can give less of a well, damn if we uh, abort our babies or not. Well, except insofar as it makes it, it reduces economic power. Yeah. So I mean keeps mm-hmm. people in poverty. But but no, I agree with you. Yeah, but I you know, it was just but she was like that had absolutely nothing to do with us, which yeah. is interesting. Yeah. So that's not a really good segue, but I do want to segue to our the second thing I want to talk about is revisionist history mm-hmm. and the wackadoodle job is doing on a lot of young people. Mm-hmm. Um, again, me and my Facebook fights, I um made another. I was commenting on another post. I don't like comment commenting on open posts like mm-hmm. from the from from. Uh, local Fox 6 News. No, no. I see stuff, and very rarely, it's got to be something that really hits me mm-hmm. for me to make a comment on it. Right. And and even again, yesterday, there was another article I made a comment, and all of a sudden you get these white people talking about, you know, um, yeah, uh, we had a bad slavery history. You don't like the Confederate flag if you listen to the stuff the CNN says. Mm-hmm. And like, I don't need CNN to tell me that white people had black slaves. Right, right. You know, Everybody had slaves. Right. Black people own slaves. What? Yeah, right. Like, 
But where where are they getting this from, and how how does it even pretend to make sense? Mm-hmm. Well, and even like, – so the other question is, so what if they did? I right. mean, or so what if you find one or two people who did? I mean, you, there's six billion people on the planet. You can find someone you know, who did something. Right. But um, uh, this, this whole idea of uh, – another one that I use a lot is, well, the Irish were also slaves, you know, um, which is not true. They were indentured servants. Right. But um, the, the reason – I mean, rather than get into debating the history – for me, I, I try to look at the why are you deploying that rhetoric? Like, what is the objective of saying that? Well, it's to say essentially, like, if I say, well, the Irish were slaves, it's to say, so what's black folks' excuse having been slaves that they are still caught up in being slaves, right? Right? Or that that today's uh, racial disparities or inequalities can't be traced back to slavery because the Irish were slaves too. That's that's the rhetorical attempt of that, right? But they also forget the fact that. That the the Irish indentured servitude right. or slavery didn't happen as long as exactly you know that with African Americans. You heard false you, comparison. Did right? you the story of John Punch? Mm. You remember that? Mm. Mm. It was on the it was on the podcast okay. on CN White. Okay. So in, in like right after you know America was found, mm-hmm. <laughs> right? Uh, you know the Pilgrims brought in over some indentured servants. They had some. Indigenous servants from Ireland. They had a couple of indigenous servants from Scotland, mm-hmm. and they also had African indigenous servants. Mm-hmm. And there was this guy named John Punch mm-hmm. and these two other um, what non-black mm-hmm. indigenous servants who fled. Like they, they were like, "Fuck this, I'm out." Right, right. Mm-hmm. So the indigenous sla- uh, servant, the indigenous servant hunters, mm-hmm. slave hunters, caught them mm-hmm. and they put them out on trial. Mm-hmm. Well, the judge let the Irishman and the Scotsman go. Mm-hmm. But he was like, no, John Punch, mm-hmm. you got to be a slave for the rest of your life. Right. Mm-hmm. Like, it was the first time white privilege was ever yeah. executed. Right. Yeah. And so, in order to say that Irish people were slaves, mm-hmm. you have to forget, like, this is like in the 1600s that right. this happened. Absolutely. That white people, that Irish people were, like, given white status and, like, well, you're not going to have to take the punishment that these black people do. Mm-hmm. And it only feeds more into the narrative mm-hmm. of, like, the way our criminal our criminal justice system disproportionately is two tiered. You got white rules, you got black rules. Exactly. 100%. And, and mm-hmm. white people don't want to admit that for some reason. Well, again, part of it's, you know, wanting your hands to be pure, you know. Pure um, white. Yeah, well, yes, right. <laughs> well, it's, you know, what to, I, I want to absolve myself from, from responsibility or guilt. I don't want to admit that, um, that part of the reason I'm, I'm in the position I'm in is that I'm white. So, you know, when you look at the racial disparities, um, I'm going to give you two racial disparities. One is economic. Right. So we look at net worth, average net worth of families. Average net worth of white families, $90,000. Average net worth of black families, $5,000, right? And, and one of the big reasons that happened was because of redlining. Um, the hist- you know, we gave away $2 trillion in financial aid to white families. Right. 98% of it went to white families. Uh, and that, they used that to build wealth. So we have generational wealth building from 1930 until whenever, 1970-something. And uh, no wonder white families have such tremendous, you know, net worth. Black families didn't have access to that. Right. So that's one one racial disparity. But it's it's much easier for me to feel like I've worked for what I've got, you know. <laughs> and those black people are just lazy. Right. So here's here's I was with a bunch of clergy the other day and we were gathered in a room. We were, we were uh politicking, which is what we do at this time of year. <laughs> and um 
uh, I was one of one of several white guys in the room, uh, and some of these other pastors, they're at very large churches. They have they make a lot more money than I do. They have very large congregations, um, and I'm I'm not resentful of that. I'm just stating facts. Right. Um, and but one of the things I wanted to bring to their attention is I said, look at look at who's in the room because we're talking about. Uh, this is, these are inclusive Methodists and centrist Methodists. We're talking about the fact that the Methodist Church has, has been has doubled down on excluding gay and lesbian folks. Right. So um, you know we're gathered in this room. There's only two queer people out of you know 20 in the room. And I said I said look the people who need to be at the table, even this table, aren't actually in the room. And I said also the fact that um, you know we have some of us are pastors. We're all here because we're leaders. Right. We need to remember that of the hundred largest churches in the country. Only one is led by a woman, and only a handful are led by African Americans. So for the white preachers in that room to think, well, I am here because of my merit, because right. I earned it. No, man, you've got the luck of a coin toss, right? If you had been born black, you wouldn't be in this room, right? Because there was like one black person out of 20, 20 preachers in there. Uh, if you've been a, a woman, now we do have some amazing women who are right. leaders, but the chance, the odds are you would not be a, a very large church. Right. And so when the movers and the shakers get together to make decisions about the denomination, <laughs> you know, they're unaware of the power and privilege they have. And if you point it out to them, they get offended. They get angry and defensive. And, and all of that is about not, you know, we, we have this implicit theology of deserving instead of that, you know, we don't deserve, deserve right. what we get. Anyway. You would think you would think if you had a theology of grace, you would understand you don't get what you deserve. Yeah, <laughs> and, but a lot of people don't. A lot, a lot of people, a lot of people don't. And I think that's one of the things I like about it. I think that's one of the things that we mutually like about each mm-hmm. other. You know, I often find myself in spaces where I'm like, "There's no way I should be here. <laughs> like, I like I did, I should not be in this room. I, this is mm-hmm. out of my league, past my pay grade." And I think God trusts me with too much. Yeah. You know, yeah. and those, and it's interesting because even when we were at the uh, the POC meeting, the, the people of color meeting and the queer and trans meeting in Minneapolis, mm-hmm. you know, one of the things was like, you know, if we reform the Methodist church, who gets to be leaders? Mm-hmm. Oh, I know the people who don't want to be leaders. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. Right. <Yeah. laughs> you know, exactly. Because they're the ones who are going to be least likely to let their implicit bias and their mm-hmm. their 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 relationship with privilege right. drive their thinking, mm-hmm. because we people who think like us are like you know, let's just yeah. You know, we when we were at that dinner table and mm-hmm. one of the guys uh, was like, yeah, Dave, and when you said you know I'll give up my position right now if you put a woman in my place, <laughs> you know I'm like, oh so he just radicalized the damn time. Yeah. But you have to give people who have been marginalized a shot. Mm-hmm. And, and people don't want to do that, which yeah. is, again, why I keep saying we just have to start over. <laughs> right. Well, no, I think that's true. And I think I think part of that is we, we especially in, in church circles, what I just experienced this week, we always think power comes from above. Right. And so one of the things, one of the ways that manifests is that we think in order to win, we have to have a majority. Right. So we have to have 51%. No, you don't need to, to to create change. You don't need fifty one percent. African Americans weren't fifty one percent during the civil rights movement. You know, the, we weren't fifty one percent to get Barack Obama elected. Absolutely, and and uh, even the top when they topple out, toppled um, Romania, 
They didn't have 51%. Right. What they what people who study this stuff realize is it only takes three and a half percent of the population engaged in sustained nonviolent resistance to topple a dictatorship. Only three and a half percent. Wow. So squeaky wheel gets the grease, right? Right. So power is not about just I mean ballots are good, but there's other forms of power. You know, there's other ways we can exercise power. I mean, I can go and stand, I can go and get arrested, you know, and that's going to have, that's a form of power. Right. I, if I get on the news, that's a form of power. Um, and that's, you know, I'm not, not being a media whore. I'm just saying that <laughs> there's, there's other kinds of power. Speaking truth is probably the most powerful. I mean, I'm, as a believer, probably a little bit naive. I think speaking truth is one of the most powerful tools we got. Yeah. I so. agree. Well, look, okay, so this is uh, end of our second segment. We're going to come back after this break. And then we, I'm not going to play five questions with you because we've already done that. Mm-hmm. Uh, let, we'll just talk some more. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> All right. This episode of Let Me Say This is brought to you by Birmingham Black Pride. Join Birmingham Black Pride this August 15th through 18th for our second annual Birmingham Black Pride. Tickets are now on sale on our website at birminghamblackpride.org. That's www.bhamblackpride.org. See you there. Peace. All right, so we are back. Thanks again for listening to Let Me Say This. Uh, we're going to uh, go ahead and get ready to close out for this third part. So we're going to talk about something else that I mentioned earlier. Uh, and this is the phenomenon that people really want to happen about White History Month. Because why? Because white people just are not represented <laughs> enough in our culture. So, <laughs> Dave, take us away. Oh, man, man. So, yeah, I mean, well, we know the, the, the common response is like, well, every month is White History Month. Um, but I think, again, it's the same kind of thing. People think they, people think they need it because um, they can't stand sharing the spotlight. I mean, it's, it's just like they don't want their own whiteness pointed out to them. And they don't want the fact that most of what they learn is through a white lens pointed out to them. So, so let me ask you, so like, I, like, I was in the eighth grade when we first started recognizing Black History Month. Mm-hmm. I want to say it was around 81, 82, somewhere mm-hmm. around there. And my eighth grade civics teacher, Ms. Phillips, she was this, she actually taught my office. So she had been teaching at least 10, 11 years when mm-hmm. I was up there. Ms. Phillips was a uh, very soft-spoken, crackly voice. Black woman who had this little bob that came right above her eyebrows, and she had these shades that she wore all the time. We figured Miss Phillips was drunk most of the time as well, <laughs> and she always smoked her cigarettes. And she was just, she was like cool. Like Miss mm-hmm. Phillips was just cool. Mm-hmm. And when um, she gave us the assignment to do a book report for Black History, mm-hmm. oh, the white kids lost it, and their parents lost it even more. This one guy got up in class was like. Well, my mother said that I'm not going to write no report on no nigger. And Miss Phillips was like, well, tell your mother you're going to get an F. Because she was, she was, Miss Phillips was just totally unbothered by yeah. all of the foolishness. Oh, wow. And, um, and it was interesting because it was almost as if they were offended that someone else was going to get the spotlight mm-hmm. that they thought they so richly deserved. Mm-hmm. And how, what, what mechanism in white supremacy is mm-hmm. that? I think it's, again, I think it comes back to white fragility. It's like, you know, the the notion, again, the reason that they resent there being Black History Month is that my experience and my worldview ought to be universal. And so for you to have a different perspective 
you know, or, or to have a different version of history right. is offensive to me because I have no racial bias. As a white person, I, you know, my experience is, is universalizable. Yours is different because you're black, right? And so, and even, and so, I mean, it's even problematic to say, you know, black, black history month, because then it makes me have to like, say, well, then there's white history. There is white history. And it's the history that we're always taught. Right. Um, yeah. And, 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 you know, like, it, people don't understand that also with, with history, like the parts that gets told are the parts that people want you to hear. Right, right. Like, you know, they told us about um, Martin Luther King, they talked to us about A.G. Gass, and they talked to us about Booker T. Washington, mm-hmm. you know. But when you really think about the just the breadth of, mm-hmm. of, of the contributions that black people have contributed to the building of this country, mm-hmm. you know, from the designing of a lot of the buildings that stand mm-hmm. in Washington to, you know, um, what was the guy named Atticus? Okay. He was the first guy that got killed in the... Oh, Christmas Addicts. Christmas Addicts. Yeah, yeah Christmas mm-hmm. Addicts. You know, you got all these black people who contribute mm-hmm. to history, and they just get written out. Right. And it was the same thing that I was talking about when, on my other podcast, I was talking about people don't like the fact that we do Pride Month or we do queer history, because we're so often just left out of the narrative. Right. And if we don't leave us totally out of the narrative... There's a really, really integral part of who you are yes. that's left out of the narrative. Well, and because history is really about is really telling us about today as well, and, and so that so it's ideologically loaded. So even to talk about Black history means that we have to talk about race. Right. So here's one of my favorites in in the book Lies My Teacher Told Me. One of my favorite illustrations is the one about Helen Keller. So you know, because I went, when I was in sixth grade, we had to take Alabama history. Mm-hmm. We watched the Miracle Worker. Mm-hmm. So we saw her sign water, and it was like, oh, so who's Helen Keller? Well, she was this blind and deaf kid who learned how to talk, and that's all we ever knew. And so then we told Helen Keller jokes, which are terrible jokes. Terrible. Everybody yeah. did that though. I mean, everybody told. Yeah, I mean, if you grew up in Alabama, you, you told the Helen. You told Helen Keller jokes. True shit. But um, you know uh, the. What they don't tell you is that when she grew up, she became a labor rights organizer and that she was a communist. And, uh, you know, and the reason was because she worked with people who were deaf and blind that took her to the hospitals. And most of the people were deaf and blind because they had been injured in factory accidents. And so she was advocating for workers' rights. If you start telling that history, then you have to start talking about organized labor and capitalism and and then the whole house of cards of, of the way we teach American history comes crashing down. And for me, that's what it's about. So if you start talking about Black History Month, start talking about Bayard Rustin right. and um, Paul Robeson, both of whom were socialists, right. right? But Angela Davis comes to Birmingham, and and General Krulak, who I do respect, tell you know writes a letter saying she shouldn't be honored for um, she shouldn't get the Civil Rights Award because she's a socialist and and blah blah blah. Well, so is Bayard Rustin, so is Paul Robeson. But General Kulak has been indoctrinated in American history. But know? this is the thing that kills me. America is supposed to be the country where you can be anything that you want to be. Yeah. You know, my rights stop when they start infringing upon the rights of other people. Mm-hmm. So if you, you know, it's like even when when the whole thing with the birtherism thing came out with President Obama, mm-hmm. you know, the the correct response to that was, so what if he's Muslim? Right. Exactly. You know, and I have to give, you know, I, there are a lot of old white Republicans that I have to, like, think a little bit about. Mm-hmm. 
and I ain't trying to give him too much credit. Mm-hmm. But John McCain, when he stopped that woman from calling him, uh, saying he wasn't American, I'm like, yeah, that was the right move. Yeah, yeah. But then, you know, the Republicans, first of all, we live, they live in a post-fact America. Mm-hmm. Uh, anything that doesn't go along with the way that they see America is a lie. I mean, mm-hmm. we see it every day with our shit head for a president. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, the minute someone is not on his team, then it's nothing that they say is true. Mm-hmm. They're a liar. Right. You know, they're nasty. Right. right. And yeah. I, it, I really feel like too many people are adopting that way of thinking. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, and, it's, and it's scary because mm-hmm. if you get the wrong people with that way of thinking, we could be in some serious trouble. Right. I think we're in serious trouble now. Well, we are. <laughs> but but all that relates to, again, I mean, history... There's there's a there's a narrative thrust of history and and they even explicitly say we need to teach American exceptionalism in the schools. It is an ideologically loaded history. Right. And Black History Month comes in and disrupts that. You know you can't teach American exceptionalism if you if you really look at Black history. Because exceptionalism wants you to gloss over all the fucked up shit that mm-hmm. the white people have done in this country. Hundred percent. Hundred percent. That's like so. So I introduced a resolution this uh, this last thing to <laughs> repudiate. So so in 2006, uh, the church had this resolution, um, and they supported the war in Iraq, which is against our discipline. Right. And so I introduced a resolution repudiating that one, and it, it failed. I wasn't su- surprised. But the the jingoism, the rah rah sisboomba, flag waving baloney, um, and and even you know the the tearful. References to D-Day and Memorial Day. Look, I, I just absolutely I honor veterans' service, um, but the, there's a religious aspect to that, right? There's an ideological aspect to that that says if I sacrifice for X, you ought to honor it. Right. The war in Iraq is a travesty. I am sorry that we lost 5,000 American lives needlessly, needlessly on a terrible, terrible war. On a hunch that didn't pan out. Right, and and killed half a million people. And now we got the same idiot. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. A warhawk mm-hmm. who has the president's ear now. Mm-hmm. And that's but that's how that's how history works, right? I mean, there's an ideologically loaded history, and we cannot dare be critical of American policy. Or and that's that's again, Black History Month comes in and knocks that over. I remember when uh, Robert Bork was uh, try, they were trying to confirm him to the to the mm-hmm. uh, Supreme Court. Mm-hmm. And I knew that a lot of people were against him, but I didn't realize his workings with the Nixon administration. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, so we just allow people to reinvent themselves. Like right. all of a sudden, this guy who was a total asshole, mm-hmm. you know, all of a sudden he gets to reinvent himself. Right. Even when we think about Daddy Bush, mm-hmm. you know, we think about Daddy Bush and him, and you know, the Quaker Oak man that he married, and you know, they're just you know good old people. But he was down with that whole Nixon bullshit too, mm-hmm. and it's like, oh my god, like, can we get? And I let me say this: I also believe in the redemption oh, yeah. of people. I, do I really do. I believe that people change. I think Daddy Bush probably changed. Mm-hmm. I really do. Mm-hmm. But can we not just like whisper away all the fucked up shit that they did mm-hmm. in the process? Right. You yeah. know, it's it's one of those things where. I had a conversation with my nephew Monday about some family issues, and I told him they were like, "What? Mm-hmm. Like I never thought about that, but they did what? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I like yeah, because mm-hmm. you know I think in everybody's family you have this 
sanctimonious wing. Right. Who want to pretend like they've always been able to turn water to wine and mm-hmm. walk on said water, you know, when mm-hmm. the spirit hits them. It's like, no, you were a dumbass teenager just like the rest of us making dumb moves. Right. So stop pretending to be something that you're not. And that's what I see the breath of whiteness being. Yes. You know. Always a second chance. Always a second chance. We made these mistakes, but you should give us a second chance. And let's just not talk about what we did. Right. right. Yeah. So, yeah, same thing with the 20-year-old white white guy uh, in college does something, then it's, he's a kid. If a 16-year-old black boy does something, he's a he's a man. Oh, a vicious monster yeah, who vicious. raped a white woman in Central Park. Right. Exactly. Have you seen? You haven't seen that. Not yet. I'm, I I can't do watch it just yet. I, I can't watch wait. it either. I have to wait. I mean, I, I will eventually, but I have to work up to it. So those guys are probably about your age now. They may mm-hmm. be a little older than you. Mm-hmm. Because I remember when the Central Park Five happened. I and I remember thinking. I remember Donald Trump's full page advertising. Right, right. Calling for the death penalty. Oh, yeah, sorry. Babies. They, they were babies. They were big, yes. They're like Maurice and Leo's age. Exactly. And I'm like, mm-hmm. this is what racism looks like. This is what white supremacy looks like. Because you can literally catch a white boy fucking a girl behind a dumpster mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and say he doesn't need to go to jail because it may negatively impact him. Right. But five young black boys who didn't do anything to this white woman mm-hmm. gets their lives literally ripped apart. Yeah. And we don't even want to apologize for that. That's exactly right. This is fucked up. Anyway, I got mad. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I got, I got, since we talked about it, I got to bring one. So, on if you drive from Huntsville to Nashville, yeah. you go up by I-65, you go through Tennessee, uh, right somewhere around the border, there is a giant 65-foot statue of Nathan Bedford Forrest. And he's surrounded by Confederate flags. By the way, is one of the most hideous sculptures. Like if you look at his face, it is a, like a caricature of a raging lunatic. <laughs> I, it's, it's amazingly bad. It's probably lifelike though. It, it may be. <laughs> but so he was, you know, not only was he, he, he had a terrible reputation. He killed, uh, if, he, if he captured black Union soldiers, he killed them. Um, and then he was the first Grand Dragon or president. I don't remember. He, anyway, he was one of the founders of the KKK. Um, I was just listening to a podcast that um, was done here in Birmingham called White Lies mm-hmm. about the murder of James Reeve, and they're talking about Selma. The same year that the civil rights, I'm, I'm sorry, the same year that Selma elected its first black mayor, um, the city erected a bust of Nathan Bedford Forrest in the town square. So it was like, it was a way to say basically, yeah, you may have a mayor, but we're still in charge, you know? So whenever you see these things, that the whether it's Confederate Memorial Day or right. Jefferson Davis's birthday, which are state holidays in Alabama, or all these Confederate memorials, the goal is always just to remind people who's in charge. And whiteness allows me to say, well, that's just history, you know. And it's it's always from the, from whiteness's perspective, it's always about plausible deniability. Like, how dare you accuse me of being racist? If I can say, oh, it's not racist, I have no anim- animosity towards black people in my heart. I, pass. I had a boss and, and he actually was it's interesting we had an interesting relationship I would call him a friend mm-hmm. um, but I would have to put air quotes around that friend mm-hmm. I mean at work and away from work he treated me like I was one of his children mm-hmm. uh, when he found out I had cancer mm-hmm. you would have thought someone told him one of his kids died mm-hmm. um, but he drove around He he in his office a boss of mine there was this like big ass Confederate flag <laughs> in his office. Mm. He kept one in his truck, and this personalized tag was N B 
F R R E S T. Nathan Bedford Forrest. Oh my gosh. Wow. And when he would talk about Nathan Forrest, mm-hmm. he would talk about him in the abstractness of he was a great military strategist. Mm-hmm. Nothing about the Ku Klux Klan. Mm-hmm. Nothing about the killing of black mm-hmm. Union soldiers. Mm-hmm. It was always, well, he was a great strategist. Mm-hmm. And what bothers me, and it also bothers me about that that whole swastika post that I was mm-hmm. saying about earlier, is the fact that, okay, if you get white people who have one eye open, they can recognize the atrocities that were done by Adolf Hitler with mm-hmm. the Holocaust. Mm-hmm. But those same white people refuse to see the atrocities that were done by Nathan Bedford Forrest, uh, Jefferson Davis, and Robert E. Lee. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You know, it was just, it was a disagreement over, you know, the economic structure, or it was about states' rights. Right. Like, white people love saying that the civil rights was about, the civil war was about states' rights. Right. Bullshit. States' rights to do what? State, right, right. That's not what kind of states' rights. Was it, was, did they not want to like ID people? Like, what were those states' rights? Well, I also think part of it is, especially for for white folks who who want to have, and I, this is this is me being sympathetic, okay, to a white supremacist. Okay. So we, we, um, we, we, we're we'll, we'll entertain that. Um, if if you don't have a lot to be proud of, uh, because you live in rural Alabama. I don't know if that was sympathetic or not. That, and, but okay. <laughs> and, and you feel, but you feel politically disenfranchised. Right. Um, you don't. You don't earn enough money, or as much money as you think you ought to right. be getting. Um, and you know, especially if you see someone else who isn't white doing pretty well, right. or getting some advantage that you think you ought to get, then um, it might be that the thing that you can be proudest of is being white. And I, I'll just share a story from personal experience. Now, I, I. Went through college and seminary with most of my prejudices intact. Right. I did, you know, I had plenty of exposure to other ways of thinking. But I remember there was one point in graduate school, I'm standing in front of a, of a um, bulletin board announcing scholarship opportunities. And I'm going through them and I, because I'm struggling financially. Right. I mean, I'm working two jobs and it's hard to put food on the table. It's hard to pay tuition. Uh, health insurance comes due. I can't pay it, all that kind of stuff. So I'm looking at scholarship opportunities, and they're for uh, they're for queer folks, they're for black folks, they're looking for women, and there's and you know nothing for white men, but nothing for white men. And I remember feeling resentful, so I'm standing in front of that bulletin board. I'm like, dang it! If only I were a queer black woman, I would have plenty of money. (laughs) Which lesbian? I thought that. I actually thought had that thought. (laughs) And as soon as I well not as soon, but I was like kind of steaming, and then I just I looked around and I realized I wouldn't be here. Right, and that was for me was a revelation. Uh, but I had I had to experience the resentment, and so oh, I think wow. that resentment is what they feel. But you know, you at least had the epiphany of if I were that, I wouldn't be here. Which is why they made these scholarships available. Exactly. All these scholarships they're on the bulletin board because they're, they're it's like they're sending out messages in a bottle and they're washing up because no one's answering. Right, right. Because there's no one here. But then white people see that as we're being disenfranchised and anti-racism. Exactly. Did you so exactly. so okay? Almost we got this one last story. Then we go mm-hmm. unless you come up with something else. We're <laughs> okay. But that goes back to that uh, story about the and again on that 
podcast mm-hmm. about the young lady who sued the University of Texas mm-hmm. for for discrimination. Mm-hmm. So there was this white girl who felt like the University of Texas had let forty seven people in who had worse grades than she did. Right. So she decided to challenge the affirmative action clause mm-hmm. on that basis, mm-hmm. and I think she won. Yeah, because she did. She did win, but this is what they don't tell you. Of the 46 people, 47 people mm-hmm. who had grades worse than hers, mm-hmm. 41 of them were white. <laughs> oh, that's a, yeah. <laughs> so you got yeah. like three Latinos and yeah. three black people, yeah. and you base a whole case on discrimination, right. saying you're discriminated against because you're this poor lily white woman who's just so traumatized. Reverse discrimination. Right. Yeah. But most of the people who beat you are also white people with yes. worse grades. Yes, yes, yes. So one one okay I do a yeah, yeah, yeah. so that podcast seen on radio the second season is called Men right but the one on West Point one of the things they talk about is art is West Point artificially held the um, the number of women at West Point to fifteen percent right but if they if they did a completely gender blind admission policy right. probably about seventy percent of the people there would be female. I'm sure because women are up. Yeah. Well, and because the women who apply are, are highly qualified. Women tend not to apply to something unless they're 100% qualified. Men will apply if they're 80% qualified. Just because, you know, Just we're cause, men. Because we're men. <laughs> that's the privilege part, right? So that's, and that's all we need. We need, we need to have a male prior. Right. Male, yeah, that's what we need. We need a male, male, male history month. Because we're just, like, disenfranchised. And nobody talks about us enough. <laughs> anyway, look, that wraps up this episode. Let me say this uh, again. Thank y'all for listening, Dave. Thank you again thank for you. Uh, being my guest. I think Dave may be a, a regular feature at least <laughs> once a month because I love talking to him, and we always can find new and interesting things to talk about. So, y'all be easy. Uh, like us on SoundCloud for now. Hopefully, we'll get on iTunes. You know who knows. Uh, and I'll talk to you later. Peace.